0: title of this morning's message is called Finishing Well, Finishing Well. Uh, if you follow the church calendar today, is typically known as Palm Sunday. We, we call it Palm Sunday because of what happened during the last week of Jesus as he prepared to go and die on the cross for you and me. There was a triumphal entry and palms were involved and we're going to see that in just a moment the last week of jesus is significant for a lot of reasons and i want us to think today about finishing well when i ran track in high school there were certain disciplines that we had to maintain in order to finish a race well one of those that we were taught is that you never pull up in a race you have to run through the finish line you don't start slowing down the last five yards the last ten yards unless you're injured you you run through the tape and that's a good lesson for life Uh, wherever you are wherever you're serving wherever you're working you and i should run through the tape we don't slack up we don't pull up a second lesson we learned when i ran track is never look back when you're running a race you never look back now that wasn't hard for me i was raised in a roman catholic uh, elementary school and we went to mass most days and dear one if you look behind you you're going to get whacked on the head you never look behind you in church. And so it was easy for me when the coach said, when you're running, never look back. Well, earlier this month, I've already shared with you, Roger Bannister, the first man to break the four-minute mile, he subbed the four-minute mile, 1954, he passed away earlier this month. When he broke the four-minute barrier, the four-minute mile, it happened in May 1954. He was the first man to do it, new world record. Uh, Just over 40 days later, another man named John Landy broke that same world record. By over a, a second, he lowered that world record in June of 1954. Neither man had run against one another. In August 1954, they met together in a mile race, in a mile run. It was at the Empire Games in Vancouver, British Columbia in August 1954, when they started the race, John Landy, who had set the most recent record, he led the race, almost the entire race. He ran uh, often 10 yards, 15 yards ahead of the pack. He had a couple of other guys from down under, he was Australian, who were who were supposed to pace him as they ran each lap. And uh, he thought they were going too slow, so he ran faster. And if, if you know anything about running four laps around a quarter mile track, as we did in the old days. Now it's 400 meters. As you run a quarter mile track, if you're going to do it in less than four minutes, you need to average less than 60 seconds a lap. You say, well, that doesn't seem too hard. Go try it. <laughs> just go out there. I'll hold the stopwatch for you. And so uh, for me, just to run one lap under 60 seconds, there had to be something chasing me really big. And so these guys were, he was, he was out front. He left the pack behind. Well, At this point in the race, Bannister decides, I better not get too far behind him, and and so he tries to close the gap, and he's amazed at how well Landy's running. Uh, Landy was a technician. He was clipping away. He was doing a great job, and, and he kept increasing the distance, and then Bannister would close the distance, and this continued right until the last curve before the finish. Now, that's about 110 yards, okay, about 100 yards, and in that last curve, Bannister is closing the gap, and Landy looks over his shoulder. I think that picture's on the screen on the left. Landy looks to the inside of the curve over his left shoulder. Bannister passes him on the other side. Landy lost the race. Both men later would talk about how that backward glance was what changed the entire race. He looked back. The, um, both men, by the way, ran under four-minute miles in that race. First time in history. Two guys had done it at the same time. But Bannister won the race. Well, how would you like it if someone made a statue of your worst mistake? <laughs> because in Vancouver, British Columbia today, you can go and see that statue on the right. John Landy's still alive, and he spoke at Bannister's funeral and talked about how, how wonderful it was to have a statue made of your worst mistake. A third lesson we learned is that waiting until the finish to get serious about a race is how you create regret. You don't get serious when you're going to run the race. You don't get serious at the end of the race when you're about to finish. You've got to be serious all the time if you're going to finish well. Well, in the last week of Jesus, it's clear that he understood this. If you were told that you only had one week to live, what would you do differently? What would you do differently? The interesting thing is that Jesus knew he only had a week, and he didn't do anything differently during his last week. He didn't think to himself, I've gotten one week to live, and here's what I'm going to do differently. I'm going to do everything that I didn't do, try to squeeze everything in. Um, try to do everything at the last minute, try to get things right, try to get the priorities straight. Jesus didn't panic. He kept doing what he had always been doing. When I turned 40, a number of years ago, um, I've shared this story before. I got sick and there were several months there. We didn't know if I was going to survive. And um, and I'm not going to retell that story except that I made some changes in my life. When I realized I think for the very first time, in a very personal way, my own mortality, I made some changes. I wanted my life to count. I'm not very patient in some areas of my life with myself because of that. I want to get some things straight. I want my priorities to be right. Jesus wasn't that way. Jesus approached death, and he didn't change anything because he was already living a life that counts. He had his priorities straight. And so the key to a strong finish is to live a strong life. And Jesus is our model and our Lord in this matter. So I want to share with you from this last week of Jesus's life, seven lessons that we can learn about finishing well. Now, each of these are drawn from one moment in that last week. I got to tell you, Choosing seven was hard. I don't think there are just seven. But these are seven that I think we need to look at today. Number one, on finishing well. Don't stop focusing on what matters to the Father. Jesus always focused on what matters to the Father. In John 12, it is Saturday night. Jesus is in a a home Lazarus is there, Martha is there, Mary is there, and we read in verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Verse 7, Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When Matthew tells this story, he adds in Matthew 26, verse 10, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me so here are the disciples sitting in this house mary comes she has this incredibly valuable incredibly expensive luxurious item this ointment and she covers his feet with it and wipes it off with her hair worth about a year of labor She spent it all right there. Judas, and we know he wasn't sincere. He was about to betray Jesus. He acts like he's taking the moral high ground. This could have been used in a much better way. There's not a lot of value to the way she used it. She wasted it. And so what she did is the wrong priority. What she did doesn't matter to God. And even though he wasn't sincere, the the Bible tells us, Matthew tells us, that all the disciples were indignant. All the disciples were angry at what they saw her doing. And they said things to her. They made cutting remarks to her, if you study all the accounts. And, And so they're saying, this is wrong. There is no value in what she is doing to God. She's making a mistake. But Jesus defended her action. And because Jesus defends her, we got to pay attention. Jesus always knew what mattered to the Father. He was always focused on what mattered to the Father, but in this account, he finds someone else who's living the same way. She had an understanding about what was happening that the others didn't have. Jesus cares about the poor. Jesus in his one of his last parables talks about in Matthew 26 about the importance of ministry to the poor. Those who are hungry, those who are in prison, those who are in sick. He cares about them. But he says to them, look, you're going to have many opportunities to do ministry like that. She has had a unique opportunity, and she seized it. Because she understands in this moment what matters to the Father. She alone understood where Jesus was headed. She alone seemed to understand that his death was imminent. She knew what mattered to the Father. She possessed insight that none of the other men had in their own mind and in their own heart. Why? Why did she have it? How did she get it? And why did the others miss it? I'm going to give you three clues. Because every time Mary appears in the Bible, there's a clue there that will help you understand this moment. Are you ready? Here's the first one. I'm just going to read it. Luke 10, verse 39. This is that moment where... Martha's busy getting things ready, and she complains about her sister Mary. Luke 10, 39. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. First clue. Second clue. John 11, verse 32. Now when Mary... This is after Lazarus has died and Jesus is about to raise him from the dead. Now Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, She fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Where did she fall? At his feet. And then the passage we just read, John 12, verse 3, she took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Where is Mary always found? At the feet of Jesus. She's always found at the feet of Jesus. And because of that, she's in close proximity to him, and I'm not spiritualizing here. This is a real phenomenon. She, because of her proximity to Jesus, because she was near him, she understood better than anyone else, sitting at his feet, listening, mind not wandering, focused on what matters to the Father. She understood when no one else did. And she rearranged her priorities. She rearranged her use of money. She rearranged what was important in that moment based on what she understood mattered to the Father. If I want my life to count, I've got to invest in the things that matter to the Father. And the only way I can know what matters is if I stay at His feet. Time alone with Jesus is the only way I can know what really matters to the Father. Number two. Number two, don't stop celebrating what God has done and is doing. In Luke chapter 19, this is on Sunday, probably Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon. I don't know exactly the time of day, but, but this is the triumphal entry. Jesus is riding on that donkey. He's coming into Jerusalem. They have put cloaks on the donkey. They put cloaks on the road. They're waving the palm branches. He's coming in like a king, a warrior, He's sitting on a donkey, and uh, and so we read in verse 36 of Luke 19. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Now that's what God has done. So they're praising God for what God has done, what they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes. That is present tense, who is coming. And so they're blessing God for what he is doing right now, what he's doing. So what he's done, they're celebrating. What he is doing, they are celebrating. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So here it is Sunday, triumphal entry, Passover is coming, and the disciples are engaged in a great celebration during the final week of Jesus' life. Too many Sundays, I believe we come here not to celebrate but to be recharged, and I understand that, I do, but if you and I are at the feet of Jesus and we become conscious of what God has done, we're already rejoicing. When we become conscious of what God is doing in our life, we're already rejoicing. Theoretically, we ought to be coming here not to be recharged, but in the overflow, we're already celebrating. We're celebrating together what God has done and what he's doing, but too many times I've walked into a lot of churches, I don't see a lot of celebration. I see a lot of stone-cold, hard, blank stairs. I used to travel. I remember one church in particular, I won't name the place, some of you all might have relatives there. I walked into a small church one time, smaller membership church. They didn't have screens, they didn't have the technology, I'm not even sure they had a microphone. It was a smaller membership congregation. It's a full room, but it was, it was a smaller church. And that's okay, that's no problem. I've I've taught for years. Don't depend on technology if you're a preacher. Don't, because the screen may go out, the mic may go out. You got to be ready to handle it. If your whole sermon depends on a picture, you're in trouble. Okay. So, so that's no issue. And I preach in a lot of smaller membership churches. And so I walked in there, and um, in this small community here in Arkansas, and and I I I'm trying. I'm looking at this group. They are not celebrating. I was an outsider. I felt like an outsider. They stared at me like a calf at a new gate, we would say in Texas. They would stare, and I thought, well, okay, so I just plowed on, prayed my favorite prayer. What's my favorite prayer? Jesus help me. And, um, and So I thought, well, I, I don't have a video clip, but I'm going to tell a story. I said, how many of y'all seen Star Wars? <laughs> Nobody raised their hand. I thought, oh no, am I might in trouble. I tried to tell the story, Luke Skywalker at the end coming in, he's got to put that little torpedo down that little bitty hole to blow up the Death Star. And they were hearing it for the first time. I told, a, I told a couple of funnies in the process of talking. Nobody got it. Or my delivery was way off that day. Well, I wasn't there to tell jokes or tell stories, but, um, but I did notice they weren't celebrating. Not a lot of celebrating. You and I need to recognize that our God lives, He is at work, He is a king. These people are shouting His praise. They are dancing in the streets. They are welcoming his presence into their lives, into their town, into their world. They are rejoicing. They are praising him. And dear ones, that should be a way of life for you and me. And in the the 20th year of my life, the 40th year of my life, the 60th year of my life, and the last week of my life, oh God, help me to celebrate who you are. Number three, don't stop weeping over the lost I see this in the last week of Jesus in Luke 19, right after the triumphal entry. Verse 41, it says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Now, there are different words for crying or weeping that are used in the Scripture. There's a word, for example, that means to to weep silently. To just kind of be in the back and, and with tears running down your face, you're not making any noise, just to weep silently. That is not what Jesus did. This word means to wail, to cry aloud over the city. Now earlier in, in Luke 13, this is Luke 19, in Luke 13, Jesus says, verse 34, O "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often, meaning many times, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Many times I sent a prophet, I sent a teacher, I sent a preacher, and and I was willing, I was willing to receive those who turned, who responded to that message. Many times I sent them, But you were not willing in each and every time I sent a word from me. And so in Luke 19, Jesus comes to the city and he wails. Oh, Jerusalem, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. Now, I don't know what your theology is. You're a Calvinist, if you even know what that is, or not a Calvinist. But this verse makes very clear that Jesus was willing, but they were not. And that hardness of heart, that resistance to Him and who He was and His message caused Him to weep. And you got to look at that and say, well, what difference does it make? Why? have that kind of pain? Why have that kind of anguish? Why have that kind of compassion on people who don't give a rip about God or about Jesus? Dear one, all I can tell you is that Jesus had compassion on the lost. And the thing that ought to concern you and me is when my heart is anything less than what his heart is. And if my heart is not broken the way his heart is broken over lost, hardened, resistant people who have rejected God, if my heart's not broken over that, something is wrong with me. And it shouldn't start in the last week of my life. Number four, don't stop telling others the truth about God. And in um, a few verses later in luke 19 verse 47 it says and he was teaching daily in the temple now as you look at the last week of jesus that might have been sunday he may have gone in there and did some teaching monday yes tuesday there's a whole whole library of teaching wednesday we don't know exactly all that happened on wednesday but it says he was in the temple daily so he probably taught daily thursday that thursday night was the last supper there was time during the day he he probably was teaching then he was doing what he had always done he was teaching the truth about god now if you look at the verses before and after this verse it says he was teaching daily in the temple and the verse just before it it's where jesus comes in and he cleans out the money changers now, i don't know about you but if you ever questioned the authority and the masculinity of jesus that should dispel any doubts you have because he went in, and he said, out, and they got out. And he threw them out. Why? Because what they were doing was presenting a false picture of God, that God is someone you can pay off, that God is someone who cares only about your money, that God only cares about things that you do to make him happy and to please him. And there's no picture of grace in the way that they were going about it, and they were probably ripping people off, too. So Jesus, who had been a carpenter, worked wood with, without power tools. Big hands, strong man, goes in and drives them out. Why? He was opposed to false teaching. Then it says right after that he was teaching daily in the temple. Right after that it says and all the people were hanging on his words. They couldn't get enough. He had the words of life. When you read this week in, in the scripture and God shows you something, and you get excited about it, maybe you write it down in your journal, you make a note in the margin of your Bible, you take it immediately maybe and you pray about it, but God shows you something in his word. Can I encourage you, not in the last week of your life, but right now, to share it with somebody else? As God shows you truth, as God makes things clear to you, as God... makes the gospel ever, ever more real to you, that God has saved you by His grace. You have contributed nothing to that. He has loved you without conditions. He has loved you infinitely. He has loved you eternally. Share that with someone. The Bible talks about earlier in Luke, Luke 16, Jesus tells a story. It's not a parable. It's never called a parable. He tells a story of a of a rich man and a poor man. The poor man sits at the rich man's gates. He eventually dies there. The Bible says that poor man, Lazarus, is carried to Abraham's bosom, a symbolic way of describing heaven, the presence of God. The rich man dies, and he goes to hell. And this, this man in hell is conscious with a conscience, and he wants relief, and there is no relief. Cries out, Father Abraham, you know, dip your finger in water, give me relief. There's no relief. But one thing that guy has in hell is an absolute knowledge of the truth. And the first thing that comes to his mind is Would you send someone to talk to my family? Would you send someone to talk to my family? so that they don't have to come here, for I am tormented in these flames. That's what he says. And there's something about when the truth gets a hold of our heart, we got to tell somebody. When I understand God's love, i got to share that with somebody. And so don't stop telling others the truth about God. Number five, don't stop fighting the enemy. Don't stop fighting the enemy. In Luke 22, verse 2, and this is on Wednesday of the last week of Jesus, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. How are we going to do this? We've got to get this guy out of here. He's, he's interfering with our popularity. <laughs> Not that they were all that popular. But, but he's interfering with us and our leadership and our influence, so we've got to get him. How are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? Just so happens in verse 3, it says, Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. How about that? the enemy, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. You can't always see what the enemy is doing, but he is consistent. He is consistently opposed to you. He is consistently opposed to God and the presence of God in you. And he is going to fight you. He's going to do all he can to surprise you, to attack you, to discourage you, and to keep you from being a functioning member of the body of Christ. He'll get you negative. He'll get you discouraged. He'll get you critical. He'll put you at odds with other members of the body of Christ. He will look for every opportunity, and he will seize every one you give him. You can't stop fighting. You can't get to a place in your life and say, well, I'm past that. Um, I'm beyond that. He can't touch me. Well, there's some truth to that. But the problem is we let him, and we invite him to sometimes. Let me tell you where he's going to attack you the hardest, and that's in your faith in God, your trust in Jesus. He wants to do everything he can to get you to doubt him, to not trust him, and to hold back your affection from him. I'm going to say more about this in a moment. But you can't stop fighting the enemy. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4 verse 7, knowing he's near the final stages of his life. He's in prison for the last time. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What was that fight about? Faith. Faith. Number six. Don't stop serving those around you. Don't stop serving. In Luke chapter 13, uh, excuse me, in John 13, we have the, the last supper. The Lord's Supper is being implemented during that meal. Nobody else had done what the servant should have done. Jesus gets up, wraps a town around his waist, grabs a basin, and washes the feet of every one of the disciples, including Judas. And he washes their feet. And then verse 14, it says, If I then, Jesus is speaking, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. What did he do? He served them. What is serving? Serving is meeting needs. It's that simple. It's just meeting needs. You see a need? If it's in my power, I meet that need. That's serving. That's what serving is. And what happens is that as you and I get older, we tend to think things ought to change. It's time for somebody to serve me. And there are ones that is very dangerous in church. And some of you who have the most experience and the most mileage have the most capability to meet needs. Because of what God has done in your life and the things that you've learned. And the thing God is doing with you. Sometimes we get to a place where because of our health and circumstances, we think there's nothing more I can do. I've done all I can do. And I am challenge you to keep serving, keep meeting needs. I tell you what, I have left more than one hospital room after talking, having a conversation with a dear saint who loves Jesus and who keeps serving and have come out of that room more blessed than when I went in and I went in to serve them. Now, how is that possible? Because even when there's nothing else you can do, you can still serve. You can say, how can I pray for you? <laughs> and then really pray. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of ways you can serve. You don't have to have physical strength to serve. You don't have to have doctor's degrees to serve. This is something every child of God is called to. Don't stop serving those around you. And finally, number seven. Don't stop trusting in his wisdom and his will. Don't stop trusting in His wisdom and in His will. You know, after the Last Supper, they went ultimately to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has a final prayer time, time alone with God in that garden. In Matthew 26, verse 38, then He said to them, to the disciples, My soul is very sorrowful, this is Thursday night, even to death, remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 42. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Verse 44, so leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Do you think Jesus was in a fight? He said, not as I will, but as you will. He said it once. Shouldn't that be enough? Second time, your will be done. Third time, it says same words were prayed. Jesus was in a fight. He was in a fight of faith. Who am I going to trust to take care of me? Who am I going to trust in the plan that's ahead for my life? Who am I going to trust? Is this really the best way? Does this really have to happen? Is this really what's needed, Lord? And he goes into that garden. We have talked about this with two wills. His will and the Father's will. He comes out of that garden with one will. And it shows us the humanity of Jesus. He was the Son of God. He was Emmanuel. He was God with us, but as a human being, he was dependent on the Father, through the Holy Spirit, for everything He said and everything He did, and we see His humanity at this moment, and his human will balked at what lay ahead. In Luke 18, Jesus is teaching on prayer. He tells a story of a persistent widow. Widows in that day and time were fairly defenseless in society. If you didn't have a family to take care of you, uh, you were in trouble. You were dependent on the charity of others, people taking advantage of you and so forth. Well, she had a legal case. She goes before a judge. Jesus is telling this story, applying it to prayer. She keeps after the judge. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. And finally, to get her off his back, he listens to her. And Jesus says there's a lesson here about prayer I want you to understand. He says that persistence is not something that offends God. Persistence is something that pleases God because it demonstrates your faith. And that your faith and your understanding of who God is, you will not let him go. And you persist. And it pleases him. And he says, so don't don't grow weary when you pray. Keep praying. Keep praying. Keep praying. And Jesus models that here in the garden. Now, what's interesting is at the end of that story in Luke 18 about the persistent widow who teaches us persistence, at the end of that story, listen to what he says. He says it in verse 8. Just listen. When the Son of Man comes, when he comes back to earth, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find a man, will he find a woman, a boy, a girl who trusts him no matter what? No matter how hard it gets, how difficult it gets, how how horrible times become, how much oppression there is, how much persecution there is, how much hardship and suffering there is, will they still trust me? Will there be anybody left who trusts God? In Matthew chapter 12, uh, excuse me Matthew 24. again during the last week of Jesus's life Jesus is talking about what's going to happen at the end of time and he describes the events that are going to take place and in verse 12 he says and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold because lawlessness, which is absolute transgression of everything that pleases God, just just abject rebellion, because that's going to increase. The love of many is going to grow cold, because if you love God with all your heart, you're going to be a target. Now, what's interesting to me is what Jesus says is that there's two things happening at the same time at the end of time. The love of many is growing cold, and faith gets harder and harder to find. And it shows me that there's a relationship between people who love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and people who trust God. And if your faith is weak, your love relationship with God is probably weak. And the two go together. And I would start with my love for Him. My point in all of this is that faith is a fight. We like to think that as I grow and I learn more about the Bible and I keep faithful to church and I keep giving and I keep doing all the right things, that my faith will grow stronger and deeper and and difficult to shake it. would be harder to shake it. But what we see in Scripture is that at each level of our growth, at each level of our walk with God, our faith is tested. Our faith is tested again and again and again, and it becomes more challenging, and it's just as difficult, if not more difficult, the last time I trust God as it was the first time I trusted God. We see it in the life of Christ. Who is this? He is the Son of God. He has walked with the Father, dependent on the Spirit. He has trusted God to feed the 5,000. He's trusted God to raise the dead. He's trusted God for these things. And here he is at the last night of his earthly life. God, I want to trust you. Is there any way this cup can go? If not, I'm still going to trust you. Do You think that was easy? The Bible at one point says he sweat drops of blood in his anguish at that night. Seven years ago, I, I did a funeral for my college roommate. His name was Carrie, Carrie Owens. I don't know if he's in a relationship, Tommy. But he was uh, my, my college roommate. We were close. My kids called him Uncle Kerry. When Kerry would call the house when the kids were little, he'd always disguise his voice as a telecaller, you know, or, or as somebody who needed financial assistance or as somebody who was in trouble or whatever. I could tell you some stories. He would always do that. And the kids, they, he would string them out. He'd string me out a time or two. We had a lot of fun together. We were lifelong friends. He discovered that he had a brain tumor. We went through a process where, where he lived, in North Mississippi. When they took a look, they just closed him back up, said, we can't operate on this. One of my daughters at that time was working for Group of surgeons at UAMS, and I talked to her about it. She talked to one of the surgeons, who was one of the leading surgeons on on brain tumors and operations involving the brain. And he looked, he said, "Have them send the workup over." They sent it over. He said, "I'll I'll do it." And so Carrie came to Little Rock, and and uh, the day of the surgery, uh, I went in to talk to him. And ultimately, the surgery did tremendous. Good, it debulked the tumor, but they couldn't get all of it. It ultimately killed him. And then the process took away every bit of his humanity. It was awful. It was just awful. But on the day of that surgery, I came to see him. I was in the room with him. And Kerry looked at his family members and some friends who were there, and he asked them all to leave except me. And he looked at me and said, Don, I'm not going to make it. I said, he said, I may survive the surgery, but I'm not going to survive this, this illness. He said, I want you to preach my funeral. I said, well, buddy, that seems a little premature, but you got it. Whatever you want, you got. And then he said this. I wrote it down. Don, I've got so many questions. What's going to happen to me when I die? Now, Carrie and I had sat in the same classrooms together in college, studied the New Testament together, studied the Old Testament, studied theology, studied hermeneutics, how to interpret scriptures, studied ministry things together. We'd sat in psychology classes together. We'd studied all kinds of different topics, studied history together. He was raised in church that taught the Bible. He had had great pastors Teachers, he had a lot of head knowledge, and uh, he had sought to live his life in a way that honored the Lord. But at that moment, he said, you know, I really don't know what's going to happen to me when I die. I got him a little book, a book called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. And um, when he couldn't read, we got him the CD so he could listen to it. It's one of the great biblical uh, contemporary books you can read and study about heaven. It's a great resource. But in the process of reading that, listening to that, it encouraged him. And he continued to trust the Lord. But what I want you to hear in that is that here's a guy that loved Jesus. And at this critical moment in his life, it's no less challenging to trust God then than it was at the beginning. And more likely than not, it's going to be more difficult. It's just as challenging. It's even a greater challenge. Why does God do that? Why does He do that? Well, we've studied that here. Your faith is precious to God, your trust in Him is valuable to Him more than anything you could give Him. Your trust is precious to God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, it says in Hebrews. In 1 Peter, when we studied that, you should have remembered a couple things, that when, when, when we have faith in God, we can expect over the course of our life, God's going to do a couple things with our faith. One is, he's going to constantly prove our faith. And the proving of our faith is to put us in situations where the only way I can respond to it is to trust God. That proves it's real, it, it, it tests it, shows that it's valid, it's authentic. A lot of people say, I believe, I believe, but until you're tested, you don't know what you believe. The other thing that God does is He purifies our faith. He increasingly puts us in situations to where my faith is all I've got. And I can't trust in that thing because that thing just broke. I can't trust in that person because that person just left me or betrayed me. I can't trust in this. I can't trust in that. And so the purifying of our faith is coming to a place where I trust him. And there's nothing else I trust. It's pure. I don't trust God and this and this and this. All that fades. And that process of proving and purifying our faith occurs over your entire life. Never expect it to get easy. God is not a a sadist. He's not trying to hurt you. He's trying to bring you to the safest place in the universe. And that's the place of a single heart that trusts God. There is no safer place. There is no place of greater peace. (laughs) There's no place of greater joy than to be in that place where it's just your heart trusting the heart of God.